Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. Denver Noes is the founder of WealthForLife.net and is a fiduciary with over 20 years in the industry. Fiduciary means not being captive to any one strategy and always acting in the best interest of clients. And for our many listeners and folks in the RA space, they know that. And that's one of the great distinctions of of being an independent advisor as opposed to being in a brokerage firm. He collaborates, designs, and implements strategies to help highly compensated clients in scaling wealth. Thanks to his large network of very successful clients, Denver is able to bring together cutting-edge wealth-building strategies and share them with the Wealth for Life community. He lives in Peoria, Arizona with his wife and two children. He loves fly fishing, riding their horses, and spending time outdoors with the family. Denver, welcome to the Deal Quest podcast. It's great to be here, Corey. So, Denver, I want to get into, as you know from our discussions, as the audience knows, we've got our biggest single niche as a, in terms of law firm clients is in the wealth management, independent RAA, financial advisor space. And although I have interviewed some of my clients about the deals they've done and things like that, I think you're going to bring a little different perspective from a lot of our folks that do what you do, quote unquote, in terms of a general title sort of conversation. But there's some things you do uh, very differently that relate to deals. But before we get there, I want to take you back to when you were a little kid growing up, maybe 8, 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be? Because my guess is in the wealth management space, whether it's working on more alternative investments or more traditional investments, either way, probably wasn't it. But you tell me. Yeah, I know. I think I started out, I always had this entrepreneur mindset. My dad was a business owner. He owned a pest control company. And so I grew up, you know, seeing that he had a little more freedom and the trials and tribulations that come with business ownership too. Sure. That was always in my mind just to kind of own my own business. I did not think it would be financial services at first, certainly. So I started out kind of getting a background in marketing and, and early on, and then somehow kind of transferred into the financial side of things. And Part of it was the economics. You look at, well, you know, there's a way to make a good living here, provide some value. And and I saw kind of the gaps in my mom and my dad. They didn't get the best financial advice and it had a negative impact on their situation. So there was always kind of like, wow, can I fix that problem and help? Uh, and that kind of spurred me off from there. So I think my whole, I've never worked really for anyone else. I've always been an entrepreneur since so I was 21, which was a long time ago. <laughs> which I, I love it. I love it. Well, that. You don't you don't look that that old there, Denver. So, uh, but yes, I, I guess it was it was more than a few years ago. Uh, one other question, looking back, what was the first deal of any type that you did? It could be something you know small when you were much younger or early in your career, whatever comes to mind. Oh, so well, I think it was starting business. We worked on this nutritional company, and so I was kind of involved in the setup of that and getting it going. You know, so it was kind of building that from the ground up. You know, they had a little bit of a business. So it was kind of on the acquisition side where you're going to take it, make it better, improve it, and grow the sales. 
And so being able to be involved in that process kind of early on, still in college at the time, and then, you know, seeing started to go really well, we improved sales. And then there was a, you know, a, some issues in ownership of the company, which we unfortunately didn't have a, enough power to get too involved with. The deal blew up and you know, that was that. So it was a good experience of though of learning hey, it can, how it can go right and how it can go wrong. And that was my early on stuff. Yeah. Got it. All right. So, you know, I'm going to want to relate this to deals, but before we do that, just generally, you know, we talked about, you know, from our private conversations, as a lot of the audience knows, you know, we've worked with hundreds of, literally hundreds of investment advisors, of financial advisors, both helping them break away uh, out of big wirehouses, banks and trust companies, Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley, UBS, Goldman Sachs, Wells Fargo, to go independent. We're a big believer in the fiduciary, you know, space, which you mentioned in your bio. And you have a little different approach than a lot of the, or a lot different approach maybe than a lot of the industry does. Talk a little bit just generally about what you do differently. Yeah, I think that the industry itself has a bias really towards stock because, you know, you walk into an advisor and you got, you know, 50 grand they're going to say, well, you should invest in stocks. You walk an advisor and you got $5 million, they're going to say, well, you should invest in stocks. Most financial advisors are talking just about the markets. You go to get that advice, and when you look at where most wealth comes from, it comes from creating businesses. And there's a direct correlation between net worth and business interests. And so the lower the net worth, the lower the amount of people having businesses, the higher the net worth, the higher their business interests are. So financial advisors should be talking people more about that. And sometimes it takes the fact that they come in, they have money to invest and you go, well, you know what? It's better off putting it back in your business or acquiring another business because that can be the highest ROI versus, you know, just putting it in some stocks. So having a wider approach, not just talking about financial advice being stocks and just broadening that out into all the different types of assets. Now, it's difficult to do because as a financial advisor, you know, most of the time we can't go out and just hit, you know, find someone a business to buy. But you can be a support role in that and helping them create structures so that they can do that in a more efficient way. Yeah. So it's interesting because if you think about even the terminology in the industry, right? You're right. I mean, it's stock heavy, some bonds, right? It's part of a typical investment portfolio. And then there's this conversation of alternative, what's normally called alternative investments, right? Which some folks make a, might get into, which might cover some of the categories you're talking about, but it's usually the smaller percentage, if, if anything, you know? And in fact, there's some of the bigger firms that discourage, right, a lot of a lot of alts because they, it's tough for them to evaluate and, and, and manage and there's more risk, you know, involved in advising on those. So let's talk about making that a bigger part of the strategy. I mean, listen, obviously, in terms of the topic of this podcast and what I advocate, which is doing deals to help grow your business and your net worth and, and looking at the, the all different types of deals, it's very consistent. And at the same time, though, the counter argument might be riskier, right? harder to evaluate and underwrite, harder to advise on. Probably for some folks in the industry, the question is how they, let's just be practical as an advisor, how they make money on that, right? It's very clear on money that's in the in the market. They you know, usually charge a percentage of AUM, you know, assets on the management. So talk to me about the model and and also, do you even agree that it's riskier, right? And, and if so, how do you address that? Yeah, I think we start with a framework. I always call it offense-defense. And you start segmenting assets into offensive assets and defensive assets. Offensive assets, you know, there's a lot of overlap between the two, but that's typically what people think of where they're swinging to the fences, they're going to have risk, they're going for home runs. And a lot of times in the stock side, that's an appreciation-only strategy. You know, you're, you're going to buy an asset, it's going to go up in value, and then you're going to sell it and take those profits. 
When you start looking at defensive assets, so those are assets that can provide cash flow, that can you know have not only appreciation, but they have this system to take profits and harvesting gains. You know that concept of harvesting gains is something we really talk about in defense, and that's because that's profits, right? So you have a rentable property in real estate, you're getting rent, that's profits taken off the table. Your business, you're getting sales, profits are taking off the table. And there's strategies you can do that on the investment side and on this and so on the insurance product side too. So it's trying to have some of those assets separated out in offense defense. And so what happens is people typically go offense first and they start chasing rate of return and then the markets get volatile, they make some bad decisions and then they, that creates this loop where they're then back to chase, 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 trying to recover. So if you do that in the opposite and you start setting up defensive assets first, then it makes it easier to start acquiring more deals because you're like, well, let's never go to Vegas with scared money. Right. You know, I have income coming in. This deal blows up. I'm still going to be all right. And that framework really helps people to segment it. Now, what I find most of the time is they're all offensive. You know, they've, they've just gotten their one income stream and all their money is in, in market. And, you know, they can lose a job or lose a business. Markets can go down and then the whole thing, you know, falls over. So once you start segmenting things out, it creates this opportunity mindset and they just start seeing more deals because they got this foundation that's safe so they can feel good about going forward. So let's delve into when you say defensive assets, define that a little more, give some examples of what, you know, what, what, the, what the defensive side of it is. Yeah. So I would put business income as one, obviously, because, you know, obviously you don't want to just have one businesses, but I think business can be pretty stable. You know, you're not typically going to have it whole thing blow up and go under in one day if you're doing things right. Rental real estate, obviously, is another one. You know, you can have long-term and short-term rentals. Some of the insurance side, we use what's called a tax-free matching program. So that's kind of a long-term program to secure tax-free income where you get a three-to-one match. So someone will put in 500K and then a lender will come in and match it one and a half million. Now you have a $2 million tax-free asset that can create income down the road. Those are some of the more common ones that I see. And sometimes it can be multiple businesses, right? So you don't have to yep. just stop with one or one piece of real estate, but those are typically gonna be the best defensive assets because we don't have to worry about sequence of returns like we do on markets. Markets are down, you're trying to draw income, you know, it causes problems. So I would say those are the most common ones we see. So so let's think, let's take a scenario, right? Because a lot of our Listeners are many, many entrepreneurs. Certainly, people in your industry, executives, leaders. But let's take it. Let's take an entrepreneur, right? Very, very often, those entrepreneurs, the the main value that they have is is in the business that they've founded, started working in, growing, etc. And one of the things, one of the arguments for making other investments, and you know, and certainly investments in the typical, more you know, typical asset classes like stocks and bonds, is hey, you got an over concentration of your net worth in a particular in your in your company, which is natural. For, but now we want to diversify that into some safer investments and stuff that's not as dependent upon your particular company. So that's often a first step, right? That when 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 somebody's business starts throwing off maybe a little more cash flow, that a typical investment advisor would recommend, you know, is that. So somebody comes in to you in in this scenario, and they they have some excess cash flow from their company. Finally, at this point, it's doing well, but otherwise they're money's mainly tied up in their company. What are you going to talk to them about? Yeah, I think the key there is having more tools in the toolbox. And so the average, like we talked about the average advisor is just kind of like, hey, my main tool is investments. And then sometimes, of course, that is appropriate. But when I look at business owners, a lot of times, one of them is educating them on the principles of financial leverage. And the key is using financial leverage in a safe way. 
because what really what happens is the average investor uses their own money and chases risk and they get upset when they lose. What the wealthy do is they use large amounts of other people's money in safe yep. assets and they win every time. So like that three to one tax-free matching, that is a great strategy because you're really outsourcing a lot of the risk. You're levering up the safer assets. So again, you might have a business owner and there's like, you know, I got 50 grand a year to put away. So that's, you know, 250 grand. Then like I said, a bank is going to come in and match that to the tune of 750K. So now I've created this larger asset that creates a tax-free income stream down the road. But what that also does is it now allows me to retain more capital in my business because my highest ROI might be still in my business. Yeah. So you've highlighted a big dilemma, which is the vast majority of too high of a percentage of business owners don't get the big exit, don't sell, right? When they leave and they have all that money tied in the business because they're trying to keep it going and that's their baby and that's maybe where they're getting the highest ROI. So what you're trying to do is find a strategy where you can take the least amount of capital possible out of the business and secure that future income. And that three to one tax-free matching is probably one of the best ones I've found. It's kind of the low hanging fruit of being able to use financial leverage in a safe way, tax advantage way, creating the tax-free income. But it's back to freeing up capital, keep the majority of it in the business. Cause that's, I'm convinced that that's why most business owners don't want to go talk to the financial advisor because they know what they're going to say. Oh man, based on your lifestyle, you need to save 30% of your income. We're going to start pulling money out of that business and putting it in that SEP or that 401k profit sharing or a defined benefit plan. And they're going to go, I don't want to do it, you know, because they, they're worried about the pressures of the business and what's going to happen to cash flow. So when you outsource a lot of that, you can reduce the out of pocket they need by 75% by letting a lender come in and bring that strategy in. And then that's a specific structure. And, you know, I'm sure the show links will put a link to some videos on that. But it's done without loan docs, without personal guarantees, without collateral requirements. You know, you have guarantees provided by an insurance company. It's a great, simple package that typically would have been only available for people with net worths of over 10 million. But, you know, through economies of scales and some other things, you know, it's, it's a lot easier. Once, how, once income gets over 200,000, that strategy can be viable. But that's what we're usually talking about. And then if, then when you're looking you know, back to the tax strategy side, people go into current deductions, you know, do they do the 401ks and the steps? All those can be part of it for sure. Sure. But then it's kind of an individual side. But you do see a lot of business owners that are a little more skeptical of some of those plans because they're like, wait a second, I'm going to deduct my money now. What's going to happen 20 years from now when I take out that? I'm, I'm going to pay ordinary income taxes and our taxes are going to be higher or lower. And yeah. you know, a lot of people have in mind they're going to be higher. So again, it's trying to come up with a balanced approach. Now you got me rambling, but then I would start getting into tax bracket strategy. And we're like, how can we maximize these brackets? It's really, and if you do it right and you build a tax-free income stream for the future, you deduct some taxable money now, you can save literally hundreds of thousands of dollars in taxes during that distribution phase. And that conversation too is a lot of what people aren't talking. Got it. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com assessment. That's coreycupfer.com assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. All right. So you also mentioned things like investing in income producing real estate or even, you know, other businesses or acquiring other businesses or investing in, you know, other businesses. I want to go to a place that I think was not probably the first question that most people would ask a financial person. 
but but I think it's I think it's important. Which is you know one of the things I talk about on the podcast a lot is mindset, right? And I I think there's a different mindset that entrepreneurs have than people who are work for someone else. And I don't say that in any kind of judgmental way, right? Different scenarios are, are right for different people. You know, it's about knowing know thyself. But it's a different mentality to become an entrepreneur. I also think it's a different mentality to be a deal maker. In other words, just because you're not your brother doesn't mean you're a deal maker, right? It, that's another you know mentality shift. So when you have a, somebody, especially let's say they built a, a nice business, but mainly organically, right? They've done it through providing good products and services. They have good sales and marketing. They bring in customers and clients, and and they're growing. But maybe they haven't done deals in their business. And when you start talking to them, even about these alternative investment opportunities, it's those are deals, right? You know, and invest in, in, in real estate and in companies in real estate, maybe buy another business or invest in another business. What do you find when you deal with folks? Like, talk to me a little bit about whether you see this need to make that, you know, mentality shift and, and if so, what it takes. Yeah, those are, that's a great question. So part of that is, first thing I'm always kind of sharing with clients is I'm not always the smartest person in the room. I'm very lucky to work with a huge network of people that are high net worth, very successful. And so I'm always sharing those ideas that I'm learning from other successful people. Yeah. And so part of that process with them is getting them introduced to a community of people that they can talk to that are doing the same thing. That's not just the advisor, but another business owner like themselves who's done some deals and what pitfalls that they have. And usually through the network, I can usually find complimentary business owners, you know, and they can chat and have conversations and, and learn a little bit to get started in that process. Because it is a careful process, you know, because of how how much do you want to deviate from their core business, yep. you know, because they can look at complimentary deals, you know, and everyone's always looking, of course, they want the passive business they're going to buy and not have to do anything, just give you a check. You know, but we kind of get into the reality of that, that it's not really, you know, kind of the way it typically works. I hear about it. I still hear about it, but I don't know. I haven't seen that yet. Have you seen that yet where it's just, hey, I'm going to buy the business? No, I, it, yeah, I'm going to believe it. Listen, there are certain, there's certainly businesses that over time could require less activity, right? But no, I don't think there's any any true thing. I mean, other than just pure, inve- you know, if you make an investment, someone else is running the company. But but in terms of businesses, I don't, I don't believe there's such thing as a passive income, as a totally passive income business. You can you can you can work hard in the beginning and create a business that has great recurring revenue and it becomes more and more passive for you over time, but it doesn't mean it was passive from day one. Yeah. And so on the on the real estate side, you know, I'm always kind of sharing, okay, I've had this plant that's using these guys and these guys are doing a good job. That's a harder one, I always think, because you gotta have boots on the ground in the local market and you're trying to do deals like that. And that just yeah. isn't gonna take, you know, due diligence and then it's it's back to market timing. Is right now the best time to buy real estate? I don't know. Maybe, maybe six months might be better. 12 months might be better from that, you know. So business owners are, are the funnest to work with. And a lot of times it's a conversation because I do kind of have a marketing background. And so I understand. And, and that's also kind of a tie, just a hobby of mine, just growing businesses. Yep. So, you know, we're getting into an industry and, you know, I was talking with a guy who owns a certain company and it's a roofing company and can get buying other types of businesses. And it's like, well, it turns out the highest ROI is just to add solar. So then do we add a solar company or do we add, you know, complimentary? And that's, that's hard because really there are so many businesses up for sale. Like he found four other five other businesses not related to roofing that looked like they actually had pretty good deals, but do we want to go off and do a whole separate business? Yeah. So it's trying to do the mindset of align a skill set. What's your skill set? How do we keep it focused? And where's going to be the highest ROI? Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like, you know, part of 
certainly what you're doing is, uh, you know, is being a, you know, is providing a strategy and consulting help, right, to help folks evaluate all these different ways that that they can that they can go. I mean, it sounds like the, you certainly play a decent role in doing that, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that when you sit down, you do the basic financial plan, you find out the assets and stuff they have. And so part of that is I'm going back to offense, defense. Hey, how safe is your structure? And, you know, do you have the defense set up? So, you know, everything hits the fan, you, you know, you don't blow up here and, and all that's going. And then from there, I have a lot of conversations where I just tell people, you know, let's chat a year from now, you know, mm-hmm. like they're going to go out and do this and your business is going to be here. And, and I had a conversation with a production company yesterday. They're like, well, we got this much cash. And I said, you know what? You're in the, an industry that's kind of volatile. I would sit on the cash. You know, I mean, just next 12 months, you don't know what's going to happen. And, and they they had another financial advisor they talked to. And he's like, oh, you should just buy some stocks. Market's low. And I, maybe, I mean, you know, I'm not, but I'm kind of like, I, I'm a, as a business owner, I would sit on the cash. Yes. You know, because, so I think it's, you got to be prepared to give that type of advice. And not have to, like, I don't worry, you know, I've been in this a long time. I have revenues, I have income coming in. I'm, you know, I don't need to make, you know, sales on every deal. And so I always just approach it that way as a fellow business owner. And I think people relate to that mindset. Uh, okay, we're not trying to just, you know, do one thing. We're really trying to, as a community, how can we get better? Now, I do think, and I'm really curious to your insights on this too, is when you see the amount of businesses going to be coming up for sale from baby boomers, it's a staggering amount. Staggering. And so... And I also hear the same thing about that there's actually tons of capital hours looking for deals. I mean, so what tips would you have for people in, in kind of finding those and sourcing out deals? What are the best resources there? Yeah, it's no question. I mean, you're right. I mean, you the demographics are the demographics, right? And there's, you know, they talk about, I mean, they even talk about it in your industry just in terms of the amount of wealth transfer, just in terms of invested assets, right? On, on, you know, because of the, the baby boom generation. But it's, to, it's totally, there's a totally parallel truth, like you said. In terms of in terms of deals, at least the the business owners that are smart enough to you know monetize on their enterprise value is supposed to just die with their boots on and let the thing yeah. you know <laughs> what some people do and and listen if that's a conscious choice I I never judge people for their conscious choices unfortunately for for a number of people it's not really a conscious choice it just ends up to be by default that way because they haven't done good planning yeah. so yes yeah, so I see that and it's certainly yes even even with some of the headwinds we have right now. Still plenty of capital out there. I mean, so yes, yeah, so yeah. So no question. I think you know pe- people. And, and listen, for me, it's like anything else. If you are a seller, right, you want your deal to be an on-market deal, right? You want to, you know, if you're at a level where it's high enough that you'll get an investment banker interested or whatever, you know, you wanted somebody to shop it and get a bunch of buyers and then you know bidders and and all that kind of stuff. If you're if you're a buyer, you want to look for off-market deals, just like the same as in real estate, right? You know, the ones that everybody else is bidding on are going to be more expensive. And, you know, so, you know, a lot of times the best way is you just be at conferences in your industry, speak to other people you know, even spend time with your, I mean, the smartest people I know spend time with their competitors, right? You know, as opposed to, you know, especially if they're quote unquote competitors, but not really because of geography or other things or whatever, because, you know, as you build those relationships, that's the, that's the person when they're retiring who may just sell you their business without chopping it, right? And then you're going to, and you're going to get your best deal. And, and by the way, that doesn't mean it's a bad deal for the seller. It just means that the, you're going to get the people who are not necessarily the ones looking to monetize at the highest dollar. They have other things. They want to make sure their employees are taken care of, their clients have the right people. You know, they maintain their legacy. You know, there are other factors that you can bring in. So, so yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm a big believer in, you know, in, in, in doing that. And I certainly, you know, I mean, I personally do it 
to do it all, right? I've got some money in, in, in stocks and bonds and I have yeah. some investments in company and I've done plenty of real estate investing over the years. And so, so yeah, but it takes, I, I think it's two things. It takes a mentality shift and it also takes, you know, the, there is a whole advice industry where, you know, great people and listen, I represent a lot of them and, and, and listen, I have clients who recommend alternatives and things like that, but you know, it's a, it's a much more efficient and market with, with, with what much more robust system around putting people into, into stocks and bonds, right? Oh yeah. And that's the issue, liquidity, right? Easy in, easy out. And, and for a lot of people, again, like you said, it's mindset. If someone just, maybe they're retiring from a job and they work for a company their whole life and they got money sitting in a 401k, you know, buying a business is probably not for them. They probably don't want it. Just going to, you know, see what they can earn off their investments and go from there. So I think that's, that's where you see, yeah, I still think the trend though, I mean, I see so many of these kind of boring service-based businesses. And I see those being turned a little bit more and people trying to consolidate groups and get four or five of those and build them up. Yeah, I have a client doing that with some gas stations right now and eventually in car washes, you know, and, you know, eventually hedge funds are going to come in and buy those out. And I see that even in the short-term rental space, the VRVO, Airbnb space. Yep. So on the downside of a lot of that, that's getting more and more competitive for people and their skill set. And even on the Airbnb side, the individual that could own one or two of those or even want vacation rental, do really well with it. Now, some of the markets here in Arizona, like Sedona, you have investment companies, professionals that own yep. 10, 15, 20, 30, 50 those properties. And so now you're competing with someone else's just job is to give full experience and you know, that so business environments are never easy. And uh, so part of, like you said, mindset is then also aligning with the skill set that they have and what they kind of been, and want to do and enjoy. You know, I kind of also like my own self, I do it in lifestyle stages. My kids are eight and 10. You know, we're looking at some businesses that do, you know, like the fitness stuff for kids and they have the gyms where they jump around, they climb and they do all that stuff. Because that would be fun for me and the wife. We could have that business. You can run something like that. It's going to align with where we're at in life. So sometimes we'll just be having conversations too about that. Like, how do we align where you are with a business that could be fun for you to participate in? Yeah. Yeah. No, great, great stuff. What had you, so what had you come to this different way, you know, of looking at things from a lot of folks in your industry, right? You know, I mean, you know, talk, talk a little bit, let's go back to that journey and that background and, and what had you just come to a different way of, of approaching things? So part of it, of course, is watching my dad have a business. Yeah, yep. there's this kind of mindset as a business owner. If I need more money, I just go make more money. Right. And so there was always that of how good business can be. And then from the market, I started in financial services in the insurance side. Yeah. So but you always became a little more with, with guarantees, and then you know the frustrations of the markets, and you know the you know we have a great trading team and everybody you know with our RIA firm, and I mean you know. They do an incredible job, but it is very difficult to trade, especially in markets that we're in. And so I think the market is great at accumulating wealth. But again, when you look at where is most wealth created, it's not created there. It comes to there from other places. So then the logical course of action there is like, well, if I want to be wealthy, you know, where's that? Oh, it's coming from businesses. So, you know, you start having more of those conversations and then just seeing that with high net worth clients, I think there's more people that are resistant to the market than advisors give them credit for. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I have a lot of, uh, and with a lot of clientele or people I'll talk with that they're probably not even comfortable telling their advisors sometimes that they don't like the market, they don't trust it. They, you know what I mean? I've had more of those open conversations and, you know, just looking at businesses and the way it is. And that's, that's the evolution of it, you know? And I think when you look at those charts, you pull up a net worth chart of 
you know, network business ownership and you see how highly correlated it is. It's, it's not, it's indisputable. Yeah. Like it, the wealthiest people own more businesses and more real estate than any other category. So, and business is fun yeah. when you do it right. I mean, I maybe you know, back in my days of building my own business, working 80 hours a week, maybe it wasn't as fun, but you know, so it's a lot of stress, but it's challenging, not for everybody, but you know, it's yeah. very fun. Yeah, listen, no question. I mean, one of the things that I've said, and people have heard it on this podcast is, you know, for me, you know, I had the, I, I've had some experience of uh, seeing certain things, right? And, you know, what I often say about the, about the market, and again, I have money in it, is that, first of all, it's, it's highly efficient, right? So if you think, I mean, I love these people who think that they can, you know, these individuals who think they can beat the market, right? This one, you know, and they try to time. I mean, every study says, you know, says you can. The reason you can't do it it's a highly efficient market and it's efficient in ways that are, you know, maybe, you know, good or bad. You can judge them and there's, a, you know, but, but I just, you know, listen, I used to represent some of the guys in the Florida New York Stock Exchange when they were, when they were guys in the Florida New York Stock Exchange, right? And frankly, I saw some of the stuff that went on down there. Um, I'm talking about the stuff that's not proper, right? So I got to know that, you know, front running tickets and all the stuff that goes on that I'm, that I, uh, I'm not going to participate in. I don't, don't really have the opportunity to, but wouldn't if I... So I know that is going on. Then I had a buddy who helped write some of the first program trading systems for First Boston and UBS back... I mean, I'm talking about like 30, whatever years ago, like the early versions of them. And he explained to me what those things could do then. And now, of course, they're way more sophisticated. And I'm like, wait a second. You got computers that are trading, you know, hundreds of millions, tens of millions, whatever shares and based upon anomalies in the marketplace in seconds. And... Like, I'm not going to compete with that, right? right? You got people who are, you know, inside information, can't compete with that. You, you got people who are just, you know, very sophisticated, connected, and hear things even if it may not be illegal, right? So I'm like, okay, I get it. I get that game. I'm going to I'm gonna take some money. I'm going to put it in there. It'll, it'll, it'll grow, you know, over time. I'm going to be patient. I'm not going to take it in and out. I'm not going to try to time the market, and it'll give me X return, and that's that's one philosophy. But I can't compete there. You know, one of the reasons I started investing in real estate is that, I mean, yes, maybe at the high end, you know, class A commercial buildings in big cities, it's a very efficient market. But, you know, beyond that, there are a lot of inefficiencies where if you, I mean, it takes work, but you got to get to know a market. And also, like you said, I love businesses, right? So, you know, you know, so, so it's interesting because I think, you know, you, you're talking about, you know, I'm not anti the stock market at all, but I think, I think this conversation of where there are efficiencies and, you know, do you want to just put some money passively? No, if you, you know, odds are if you, over time, it'll grow by X percent. But your conversation of the fact that that's not the way the wealth get wealthy and nor the way the wealthy allocate their investable income, you know, is 100% true. And I think that's, I think that's definitely instructive. Yeah, it is. And I think when you broaden it out, you know, and looking at search funds and things and what people can do with SDA loans, you can calculate how much you could buy a cash flow producing business for with a little amount of capital. And then you actually calculate that ROI. You know, again, looking at financials, you find the right deal, you know, and, and you go minimum capital on that, you know, and you, and I, you know, maybe two or three years you're using, you're paying off the SBA loan or four or five years. And then you have this, you know, cash flow. And I've heard it said, hey, you want that, you know, what's the best way to create an extra hundred grand in income? We'll just go buy it. Right. Yep. And it's, yep. and it's not easy. You know, it takes work and you're going to have a good team and good help and all good support. But yeah, underutilized strategy. Yeah. And it's interesting. I heard someone else say something, and I think the, the stats have proved this out as well. You know, you hear all these things, you don't want to, you're, all your eggs in one basket. You want to diversify your investments. So, and, and yes, at some point that makes sense. But if you study the people who are successful, 
highly successful, most of them actually had pretty much all their eggs in one basket for a period of time. And they just took really good care of that basket, right? And that was their, you know, and then they diversified, right? You know, I mean, there's people who teach multiple streams of income. And I, you know, I think they have young entrepreneurs running around doing eight things at once. And, you know, and 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 most of the folks, at least as I've read the studies and, and the, you know, the profiles, all that kind of stuff, you know, they've, they've, they've had one business that they focused on significantly and that, and then yes, they were able to diversify later. Yeah. Oh, I 100% agree. It's one of some of our successful clients. I have one that comes to mind and he's always talking about, he does three things. He focuses on his business, he trades options, and then he does some other strategies with me. And like, those are the three things that he does and that's it. Like, yeah. Like, not going out because really the majority of wealth is coming from his business. So that's where 80% of his time is going to be. And then you know, a couple of the things on the side to help the money grow. Yep. And I see that as a trend because like you mentioned, I think it's become trendy with, with so many of these sites where you can find all these little alternatives and, you know, investing in a, a pecan farm that's going to pay you 2 or $300 a month. You know, all these sites that have those. So people get like 10 and 20 of those little things. And I don't know. I think it's harder to build a safe foundation that's going to endure long-term on a lot of those things. But again, you can be creative. I mean, I know guys that have made money in water rights for land in Colorado or, you know, foresting in, in Kentucky and places like that. So, you know, those alts are out there. But again, like the successful people I know that have done those are people that had boots on the ground and knew that system, you know, and knew what was going on. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned search funds because last week I recorded an episode. So listeners, when I say last week, this is just when we're recording the two, not when they're coming out. But but it will have come out before Denver's episode. So Bruce Marks is the guy I interviewed who is, all he does is, you know, he focuses on the SBA lending place and really his whole focus is on search funds. Uh, so, you know, he helps, you know, folks, a lot of, you know, executives who want to become entrepreneurs, military folks who, who you know, want to become entrepreneurs, you know, all these what he calls searchers, you know, be able to get SBA funding to help them, you know, buy and start businesses as opposed to starting them from scratch. So I just want to mention that because Denver brought that up as a, you know, as a, as something. And we just happened to interview somebody who that's what that, you know, he gets the funding for those searchers, all those kind of deals. So, so just look back, listeners, there was an episode somewhere in the, the couple of months, probably before Denver's that with the, with Bruce Marks, if you're interested in that. Yeah. Um, it's a great rabbit hole to go down. It really, yeah. You get into the search community and search. Yeah, it's a whole community. It's like, you know, I mean, I was, it's something I knew about, I was aware about it, but, but certainly, you know, I, I didn't have the level of, of, of you know, understanding and, and day-to-day experience that, that, that Bruce did. So he really went, went deep into that, which was you know definitely a cool episode. So Denver, what else, you know, in terms of this conversation of, you know, because what I love about this conversation is that what we're saying is, you know, this is not just talking investment advice. I mean, it, people are freed up to do other types of deals, right? If we're not only, I mean, listen, if you're going to earn business in, if you, if you own a business, let's say you're an executive and you're either going to earn money from compensation or you're going to earn money from your business by growing it organically. And then you're going to take it and put it in the, you know, in the, in, in the stock market or, or stocks and bonds, then, you know, that's, that's a pretty much sort of all organic and an investment strategy, you know, an investment in the market strategy, which is not the topic of this podcast. <laughs> and, and as we said, I think not the best way to build wealth. So really what's interesting to me is what you do really as people do deals, right? Which is what, you know, we really advocate here. Not, you know, again, not for everybody in all situations, whatever, but but the fun, one of the fundamental premises of the DealQuest podcast is that deal-driven growth and deal-driven opportunities 
is something that more people should be taking advantage of, that too, you know, few people take advantage of. So I love the fact that not only are you encouraging and helping people strategize on how to do these kind of deals, whether it's real estate investment or investment in business or whatever, but also that your strategies help free people up, you know, to have the the the, the capital, right, to be able to do other types of, of deals and, and, you know, and fund those deals. Yeah, and that's where financial leverage that I've kind of talked about comes into play because, again, instead of trying to do it all on your own using your own capital, and I'm talking about not just the deals, but the retirement accounts, you know, using leverage in a safe way, building up that structure, again, you know, because there's so much pressure to save as a business owner or high income earner, if we can, again, bring capital to the table, do that in a more efficient way. There's one of my favorite quotes from Ray Dalio where he talks about People confuse leverage with risk. Leverage is really yeah. leverage up safe assets. It's actually risk reducing. And so when people do that, like as an example, a client of mine, you know, we, we set his defense and then, you know, he was buying a really nice condo on the beach and it's like, well, you know, there's another one right above it. So they bought the other one right above it, turns it into short-term, you know, rental. But the other things were in position to do that. And now he's got a cash flow producing asset above this one. And, you know, there's the one his family is going to use below it. So I mean, that's the type of structure that you create safety and, and mindset to be able to do when you have defense. Defense wins championships, right? Right, right. That's what they say, right? Yeah. Yeah. I uh, love overlap. it. Like I said, businesses can eventually be defense. Sometimes acquiring is offense, but then boom, that switches to defense. Now it's streamlined efficient. Same with real estate. So, yeah. Yeah. I yeah, love it. All right. What else haven't I asked you about that, that maybe, you know, would be useful to, for the audience? You know, I think we've covered a lot of it. I think from the entrepreneur side, you know, when people are acquiring businesses, again, that that particular three-to-one tax-free mashing strategy, it's kind of an insurance leverage strategy hybrid. That's another one that's great when you're acquiring, you're trying to retain top talent and you don't want to give up equity. You can kind of outsource that so that you can use that compensation structure. Again, instead of, you know, the bank is going to come in and fund 75% of that. And so then it creates this tax-free income stream down the road. You know, that's a big thing. Those are also really good for selling companies and exiting down the road. Loans are really one of the keys to tax-free income. You know, we've seen Bezos and Musk and how they use loans on appreciating assets. Yes. So that's a great structure for that. As an example, I'm just using the 250 example. Somebody puts in 250, the bank matches 750. Now you have this million dollar asset that's tax-free, but that loan from the bank is 750,000. Business sells later on down the road. Now you can use business assets to pay off that bank loan. Now you've converted a lot of that into a tax-free position. There's obviously more nuance to that, but it creates this kind of no-limit backdoor Roth that can be used on the sale of businesses down the road. So it's another way to kind of protect taxes on the, you know, down the road and create some tax-free income. So I think a lot of that is back to then the other concept, which is tax buckets. So everyone's either typically in two buckets or really three buckets, tax of money, tax deferred, tax-free, most people don't have hardly any in the tax-free side. Yep. So then it's trying to build buckets and get more in the tax-free side. So if you're acquiring businesses, there's even ways you can use your old 401k to buy those businesses, what's called a Rob strategy, retirement accounts from the business. And you can use that old 401k, create a new C-Corp, 401k and that when you roll your old one into the new one, the new one buys shares in the business you want to acquire. So there's ways you can use those business funds. And I'm sure the search fund guys probably talked about, maybe talked about that. If you can do that and create a Roth 401k, then you can follow the Peter Thiel model where you can create it all and do it on a tax-free basis. Not easy just to do as I made it sound here. There's obviously steps to, to go sure. through, but having those conversations about how could it, you know, exit planning, 
how can I get, if we're going to sell this business down the road, what can we do to protect some of that from taxes? Because man, you know, we all, we all worry about market loss and it's 20, 30% downturns here or there. 30, 40, 50% is going away to taxes every year. I mean, that's, it's just punishing, punishing. So the combination for me is always using tax control, using financial leverage and building income streams. And I, we talk those three all the time. And those are the big three that are going to really move the needle, you know, leveraged tax protection and creating income. Yeah. Listen, I love, you know, I mean, obviously that distinction between leverage and risk, right. That you made, you know, that it's not necessarily as a way to do it. And uh, listen, I think people in the industry understand that. I mean, certainly, certainly in the real estate community, they talk about using leverage all the time. Right. And yeah, of course there's the risk of being over leveraged and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. But but the real estate, you know, the real estate industry is always, I mean, very few people on the, certainly on the investment side buy for cash, right? right. Or even if they, if they buy for cash just because they want to be in a position to, to close the deal quickly, then they're going to leverage, you know, they're going to leverage it, you know, afterwards. Right. So, you know, to have that sort of approach of mentality in, in a, you know, in a reasoned and, and, and you know, and safe way to do that on the business side as well. I mean, listen, you know, I mean, yeah. Whether it's whether it's you know the, gotten a bad connotation in certain situations, one of one of the things that people do and which in mostly good deals with wealthy people do is they use other people's money. That's you know that's you know OPM right. That's that's the classic you know way is you use other people's money. You know so you know I, and I and I do believe in that in, in, in an appropriate way. And it's not just doesn't just certainly apply on the real estate side. Oh, absolutely. I mean, most people are thinking of margin on stocks, which is risky, and or credit card debt, which is bad debt. But like you said, you look at the institutional big money side, obviously we all know the examples where people over leverage, but if you do it safely, it's risk reducing and it puts you in a better position. It makes life easier. I mean, you know, instead of having to sit in 10, 15, 20 years with your, from your own income, well, once you can, you know, finance that, like you would a house and then, you know, you're going to have security, you know, that asset's going to be there. So, I mean, that just makes life easier and reduces pressure. So most people just don't know. And it is true. People, another question I get all the time is, are there different rules for wealthy people? Do they do different things? Yes. Yes. Different opportunities. They have better access to capital. They have better tax strength. Like, yes, all of the above. But you don't have to be as wealthy as people think, I think, to access a lot. Yeah, to access those. Yeah. Wonderful. So, Devin, before I ask you my final question, certainly you have a lot of, you're doing a lot of, you know, great information here. I know you have a lot of resources. You mentioned one of them a while ago, but so where do people go to find out more about you in general or the various resources that, uh, that you have available for them? So, wealthtolife.news slash dealquest. That's a good one. Wealthtolifenews.com slash dealquest. And a special link for that. I'll link that to the show notes. Or you can follow me on Twitter. It's just my first and last name at Denver Noas. I'm also on LinkedIn. Just Google me on LinkedIn or search me on LinkedIn and you'll find me on there. Those are probably the best places. Great. We'll have in the show notes, but spell your last name for folks just so if they're taking it down there. O-W-I-C-Z. Okay. Z, at Z is in zebra. So it's a funny last name because my grandfather, it's a Polish last name. My grandfather came over at the start of World War One, and he was at Ellis Island and they had the enlistment booth right there for the army, right? So he enlisted and the army took one look at his last name, which was Polish in 27 letters and go, now here's your new last name. And they just <laughs> wiggled <laughs> off and sent him back over to Germany to fight, you know, but that was how, that's how that came from. Uh, they, yeah, they just chopped it off. They, they, they reached the letter limit, huh? Yeah, you're right. <laughs> Yeah, not, not not the only one. So then my final question of the podcast is always about my highest value in life, which is freedom. And that means for me, everything from freedom from all people in the world, from oppression to 
why I'm an entrepreneur and I haven't had a boss in decades. What does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? Oh yeah. I mean, that's, I, I think it's valuing time. And so like right now I have the two kids, I pick them up from school every day and I take, you know, I take them to school and I'm able to spend time with them. And that I think whenever I'm you know, frustrated with business and how hard it is sometimes. And I think about, again, just those little things like being able to enjoy this time with my kids and these years that are special. So that's a lot about, that's what freedoms mean to me. And so that's always my driver is, you know, being able to you know, the ones that it's very, sometimes it does get very reflective because there's a lot of places I'll go, whether I'm fishing or doing something else. And it's the middle of the afternoon on a Tuesday and I'm the only one there. It bites. You know, you're looking around and man, I guess I'm pretty lucky to be able to do this. So I think the entrepreneur mindset gives me a lot of gratitude and, you know, helps me have that discipline to keep going and because of the rewards that it can provide for sure. Love it. Ned Vanoas, thank you for so, being such a great guest on the DealQuest podcast. Thanks, Corey. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.